Now, as we come to the scripture, let me ask you, please, uh, to pray with me. Father in heaven, we come uh, having recognized uh, that you are the great God. And come realizing our own sin, but yet the forgiveness that comes through us because of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Come worshiping, come praying. Now we come, God, to your word and we ask that you would help us to hear, to really listen. And as we really listen, to really believe, and as we really believe, to really apply, to really commit to living out that which you call us to. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Malachi and chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2, I want to read verses 10 Through 16, we read these verses last week. I want to pick up the end of this. Matthew chapter 2, I'm sorry, Malachi chapter 2, please, verse verse 10. Hear the word of God. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendants of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Now, as we mentioned last Sunday, this passage is about marriage and really marriage and the worship of God, marriage in the context of the worship of God. That's what this passage is dealing with. We see it's about marriage in two parts. Verse 11, it tells us that they had been marrying the wrong people. That is to say, they're marrying the daughters of foreign gods, meaning they were marrying outside the faith. They were taking unbelieving women, husbands were, to be their wives. And then secondly, they were divorcing the wives of their youth. We see that uh, in uh, the, the latter section of this, of this passage. Uh, verse 14, uh, why does he not accept your offering? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. That sense of being faithless, of breaking your vows. And then verse 16, I mentioned last Sunday, this is a very difficult passage for translators to translate. So there's a variety or a couple of different, at least, translations of verse 16. One common one that we have in our minds begins with, God hates divorce. Uh, In the NIV and the English Standard Version of which I read, it's translated like this, for the man who does not love his wife or hates his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And so we see it's about divorce. And and we could say, yes, of course, God hates divorce in the sense that he established marriage uh, for two people to be joined together. That's when that's broken. It means there's sin, at least in some regard, and thus he hates that. And, And then also this, verse 16, the way we have it translated here, gives the impression that they were divorcing, and we could put it like this, without cause, because we see that in the scripture, there is cause for divorce. That is, it is permitted. In Matthew chapter 19, for instance, Jesus says that there's 
divorce is permitted because of uh, sexual immorality, uh, certainly adultery, but various sexual sin that breaks that bond between husband and wife. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul lays out uh, that divorce is permitted if a believer is married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever leaves the marriage, uh, deserts, wants out, if you will. Uh, if that's the case, then marriage is permitted. There's nuances in the midst of that, of course, uh, on, on how we understand that. That's why God provides, I think, for elders in the church to help us walk through those difficult times and those difficulties. But... Uh, this says uh, a man hated his wife. He, he put her away because he thought, at least in his mind, he no longer loved her. Thus, he took another to be, to be his wife. So, th- so that's the essence, if you will. That's the, the theme of this passage. The point of it, the big idea, is marriage. And marriage in the context of, of worship. Because, because of their sin in this area, God said, verse 13... Uh, He said, even though you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. In other words, he's saying because you've sinned in this area, you've broken covenant here, you've been faithless in your vows to your spouses, then God says that you're faithless to me. You've broken that with me. Thus, he says, "I, I won't accept you coming to me in this unrepentant state, sinning like this without repentance, and, and I, therefore I won't accept your offerings. And, and thus you see how dramatic this is. When he says, I won't accept your offering, he's saying that, there, that, that thus I'm not, uh, there's no atonement for your sin. That's the sense of their offering sacrifices made so that they would be forgiven their sins. And he's saying, no, 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 you can't live like this and just disregard me. And so, repent and come, yes, but not like this. He says there's no blessing. In chapter, earlier in chapter 2, we realized that because of the sins of their worship, in the context of their worship, uh, and the priest, the, the blessings of the, the priests were actually curses. And so, he says, when you come to me like this, disregarding me, just living willy-nilly without repentance, and, and you come into my presence and accept me and think I'm going to accept you, uh, th- then the blessing that you expect will really be a curse upon you. Thus, they would know the blessing of being kept by God, protected, provided for. They would know that great blessing. They would know the blessing of His grace. They would know the blessing of His presence. They would know the blessing of peace with Him. And so he says, I don't accept, accept your offering. Now, last Sunday, I spent a great deal of time. I won't this morning. But I spent a great deal of time talking about the emotion and even the confusion a passage like this can, can bring upon us because this area of marriage and divorce is a real one to us. And it brings great emotion to us uh, depending on our, uh, the, the lives that we've experienced, you see. Uh, there are those who are single and quite contented to be single and they're thinking, oh no, not another sermon on marriage. Uh, and there are those, even those singles who are contented to be single, but, but anticipating marriage, desiring marriage. And, and so they, they listen, they say, well, I'm not there yet, but all right, I'll listen. Uh, there are singles, those who aren't married, who've been hurt by marriage in some way. And they're sitting and thinking, oh, the pain of this again. Are those who are disappointed that they're not married. And they think if marriage is a great thing, why am I not? And why, why won't God provide that for me? There are those who are married and, and, and quite content. And you're thinking, here we go again. Uh, I know that marriage brings the best of times and the worst of times. But we're not going to divorce. We're doing all right. It's all right. Just, you know, why should I listen to this? And, and then there are those who are in marriages. who are very difficult ones. And they're thinking. I have to live through this. Now I have to hear it on Sundays. But they think, am I really stuck always in this unhappy state? In this difficulty? So there's all kinds of experiences. Not only that, there are those who are divorced among us. And you're maybe thinking, well, what's he going to say about this? I've already, I've already dealt with this. The elders told me this was all right, that I was permitted to divorce in this situation. So, so now how am I supposed to feel about this kind of a a passage, and last Sunday we distinguished between sorrow and guilt. 
But even those who said, yes, I, I, I went through a divorce and I realized it was sin that I should not have divorced, but I did and I remarried and here I find myself in this situation. What does that mean for me? What does that mean for me now? Those perhaps it's just dawning, going, oh no, what have I done? And then there's family backgrounds of marriage, divorce. For some who grew up in households where marriage was good and life was stable and family life and all of that, uh, then you have a, a good feeling, a good sense. Emotions are good when you think about, about marriage, but, but others, it's quite the opposite. And so here you sit, and I shared last Sunday that in preaching, it's difficult to hit every single circumstance and situation but there's a word to be declared. I would love to be able to say, forget everything you know and everything you've experienced about marriage and divorce and just listen. <laughs> but I know that would be like asking you not to think about a purple monkey on your shoulder. Because once it's mentioned, that's all you can think about. And again, you can't divorce yourself from life and the life you know. That's why we come to deal with it, to lay it out before God. So it's there. But I could say this. I noted once that the goal of the preacher is to humble the proud and sweeten the burdens of the saints all in one sermon. And so you see, if we think we're doing well, it's the goal of the preacher to humble us, because the scripture says, be careful uh, if you think you're standing firm, lest you fall. So just that word to all of us, be humble, to realize in the context of marriage, in the context of relationships, uh, that, 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 that we need the help of God, no matter how things might be going well at the moment, to humble the proud, but also those that are sinning in this area or contemplating sin in this area. To be humbled, to be convicted would be the Christian word. To see the, the sin that's before us and confess and repent and turn from that sin and trust God's help. To live in a way that's pleasing to him. That's humbling the proud. But then sweetening the burdens of the saints. If you're in a difficult situation, know that God is with you. If you sinned in this area and repented of your sin, know that God has forgiven you. That burden should be lifted from you. And to know that this is all of God. And for his glory, he will help. He is with all those who truly turn to him and trust in him. That's the nature of it. And so I think as we come together, and many of us have spent many years together, so I hope that plus the fact this is the word of God. We'll take some of these hard edges and enable us to really hear them and really apply them. But it's necessary for us to take this up because this is all throughout the scripture, this notion of marriage. And, and we find in the scripture that all scripture is profitable for us. So, so we ought all to be taught by it. We ought all, as 2 Timothy 3.16 says, we ought to be taught by it. We ought to be reproved by it, that is a sin pointed out by it. We ought to be corrected by it to see the right path. We ought to be trained to live righteously so that we can be equipped for everything that God calls us to so that we can live this life before him that, uh, that, is, really, that is really good. So I want to take up this section. We took up the earlier verses of being married to a, an unbeliever last Sunday. This week I want to take up this notion from verses 13 to 16. This, this divorcing the wife of your youth. Divorcing uh, without, without cause. I mentioned verse 16. Uh, in, in many versions it, it has it like this. That God hates divorce. And yet we realize that in the midst of hating divorce. As I mentioned. There is some um, permitting of divorce. For instance Matthew. Chapter 19, Jesus is questioned by those around him concerning, <clears throat> concerning marriage. Verse 3, 
says, and the Pharisees came to Jesus, tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That was when marriage was instituted in, in Genesis in chapter two. We, we see that, 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 that a man was to leave his father and mother and he was to cleave the old language really be glued to, be united to his wife, and the two become one. So they're no longer two than one. What therefore God has joined together, Jesus says, not, let not man separate. God has done this work. He's joined them together. Uh, so verse 7, they say to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Now, in the days of Jesus, there were two teachings really on divorce. Uh, one teaching said that because of Deuteronomy chapter 24, where Moses does say that a man could issue or he didn't command, they sort of twisted like they always did, the Pharisees, that a man could, in that setting, issue a certificate of divorce for indecency. That's the Old Testament language. And so the question was, what's, what's indecent enough to be the spark for this divorce? Some said... Simply being displeased with your wife was indecent. She burned your toast. You could divorce her. Others said, no, 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 no. It's more serious than that. It must be some serious sexual indiscretion. Well, 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 well they put Jesus to the test, really, on this. That was their point. And so Jesus said to them, because of, the, of your hardness of heart, because of sin, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it wasn't so. That is to say, that's not the intention of it. Verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality. So Jesus is defining the indiscretion there, the indecency there, if you will. Sexual immorality. And marries another, commits, commits adultery. So God does hate divorce, but... Because of sin, there is permission. And then in 1 Corinthians in chapter 7, as Paul is dealing with this same subject, not in exactly the same way, or in the same context of, of Jesus. Um, he lays out verse 10. He says, To the married, that is Christians who are married to one another, I give this charge, not I but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain on married or else be reconciled to her husband the husband should not divorce his wife to the rest i say that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him he should not divorce her and then he goes on to explain why verse 15 he says this but if the unbeliever unbelieving partner separates let it be so in such cases the brother or sister is not enslaved god has called you to peace how do you know wife whether you'll save your husband how do you know, husband, whether you'll save your wife? He says, if, if they leave you, they leave you. But otherwise, strive for peace. So you see these exceptions, these reasons for divorce. And all kinds of questions I know come into this. What if there's physical abuse? What if there's emotional abuse? What if there's sexual abuse? What if there's this and what if there's that? And how do we understand all of that in the midst of this? I haven't time to parse all of that. If that's your situation... And you, you need to come to the elders of the church and work that through. That's why they're there to help people see these kinds of things. How that applies in the scripture and what's the wisdom of God to be laid out there. But we see God does hate divorce in that, in that sense. But it's also right to translate these as, this passage as we have it. For the man who does not love his wife or actually hates her, that's where the hate word comes in. Rather than applied to God hating, it's this husband hating his wife, but divorces her. That is, that is to, to divorce willy-nilly for, for, no real, uh, biblical, for no real biblical cause. He's saying what you're doing there is you're being faithless to your, to your vows. And the reason that God is so animated about this, so exercised over this, the reason he won't accept their worship when they live like that, when they're faithless, to each other is it because marriage is a covenant notice the end of verse 14 he says to whom you have been faithless though she is your companion that is one with you and the and your wife 
by covenant. Now, when God uses the word covenant to describe marriage, he's using a very special word to him. Because you see, his relationship to us is defined by covenant. A covenant covenant is a word that defines a relationship between two parties. Defines a relationship between two parties. When you hear covenant, you should think of something that's serious, that's sacred, that's binding. So covenant means that two parties are bound together. And, and, and they're bound together by their vows, by the promises that they have made to each other. So one would never enter into a covenant with someone you didn't trust. That would be foolish. Because you see, what's, what's being made here in covenant are promises. And so you see, when, when God makes covenant with his people he makes covenant to be faithful to his vow to love his people with a steadfast love that is an unending that is an enduring that is an eternal love he's binding himself to that vow to that promise and when we enter into covenant with God we're binding ourselves to worship him alone to have no other gods before him, to love him with a steadfast love. That's this covenant. And, and these covenants, therefore, have, have promises that are explicit, that, that are made. Not only that, but there are stipulations in these covenants that uh, bring curses upon them if the covenant is broken. That is to say, these covenants are of such significance that that that, that, that people bind themselves by way of promise and by way of oath, by way of, by way of curse. That's why in the Old Testament language, when covenant is used, it's very often used with this expression, that one party cuts a covenant with another. The reason that language is used is because to cut a covenant means that I'm binding myself by blood. So what would happen when uh, two people would make a covenant together is that they would take an animal generally and they would cut it, as you know, in half. And they would lay out these pieces of this animal and they would walk between these pieces and as they would, they would declare their promises to one another. Implicit in this covenant is they're saying, if I break my promise, be it done unto me as was done to this animal. In other words, kill me. Thus to cut a covenant was to bind yourself to another by way of promise and if not fulfilled, you were saying, kill me. That was the seriousness of covenant to God. So you see, when he says that marriage is covenant, he means that it's binding two people together by way of their vow. And there are witnesses to this covenant always. Now, when God makes covenant with us, he's the witness, especially with Abraham. And that covenant, he swears by his own name because he said there isn't anybody greater to swear by than by me. He makes covenant with Moses, similar, except what we have with Moses are two tablets that stand as witness to us, these tablets of the law. And we have the whole book of Deuteronomy, which is that statement of witness concerning the covenant that God has made with his people. So we we have that legal binding there, witness of this covenant. It says, these are the promises made. This is how you're to live. If you don't, these are the curses that will come. If you do, these are the blessings that will come upon you. Covenant, you see. That serious, that way. And so God lays out this covenant with a husband and a wife. And in so doing, he's saying this relationship of covenant marriage reflects my relationship with my people. 
If you confuse that relationship of marriage, you'll be confused and confuse others concerning my relationship with you. In fact, in the Old Testament, God is known as husband to Israel. In fact, that was what was so destructive about the sin of ancient Israel. God said, I've been a husband to you. How could you treat me like this? And then as we read in Ephesians chapter 5, this this, uh, passage concerning marriage that that Paul lays out, uh, he speaks like this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church's body and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church for members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So we read all of that, and we say, yes, of course. And then Paul makes this statement, this mystery is profound. Anybody married says, yes, it is. But then he says, I'm speaking of Christ and the church. What does he mean by that? He means this marriage, images, models, reflects the relationship that Christ has with his church. It reflects the covenant of God with his people through Jesus. That's how significant this is to God. And so, when we're faithless to that marriage covenant, it means a great deal to God. Because he says, you're, you're distorting my relationship with my people. You're distorting how I've defined my relationship with my people. You're distorting how I've loved my people and how they're to love me. I've given you marriage to model that, to image that, to show that forth. Thus, it's a covenant you must be faithful to it. It's established, and we've noticed this verse, not only when Jesus speaks of marriage, but also now Paul. Marriage was established in Genesis in chapter chapter 2. You remember the situation. Adam was created. God brought before Adam all the animals to name. And then, it says, not a suitable helper for Adam was found. You got the impression Adam would look at the giraffe and go, no, that's not going to work. The elephant, no, that's not going to work. Every animal came, there just was no suitable, nothing like him, really. And so, God made from him Eve. And, and Adam's expression was, at last. Right? At last. Finally, there's, there's one suitable for me. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You see? She's like me, but different my companion, my complement. And so God puts it like this. He says, therefore, that it's because this one has been brought from him to be fitting for him. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You see, that's the nature of covenant. There's this public declaration, and it is public, so that a man should leave his father and mother. It isn't a private thing. When covenant is made, you see, it's a public thing, especially this covenant of marriage. It's public. Why? Because this new husband and wife are separating themselves out from their families of origin in order to say, here we are, we're now united, a real entity. We're no longer me, but we. And here we are apart from our families of origin. 
And you need to know that so you're not confused. So that when we're together, when we're companions, when we're sexually intimate, when we have children, when we buy and sell, when we live our lives, you need to take us together as a unit. That's who we are. There's a sense in which, you see, that models this relationship between Christ and the church. Because don't you know that when um, the world looks at us as the people of God, God says, when you deal with them, you deal with me. And when you deal with me, you deal with them. That's why you can't say, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church. Because you see, when you deal with God, you deal with the church. And that's why you can't say, well, I go to church, but I really don't like this God thing. No, when, you, when you're in church, when you come to church, it's, it's, it's not separated from divorce from God. You see, it isn't supposed to be anyway. It's all the one united together. He said, listen, husband and wife, it's public. People need to know. People need to know that when they deal with me, they're dealing with Karen. People need to know when they're dealing with Karen, they're dealing with me. You see, we're one. That's life together. And so he said it has to be known. It has to be public. A man should leave his father and mother and everyone know it. And be united to his wife. United, that word, old language, cleave to his wife. It really means in Hebrew to be glued together, to be made one. There's this union together, this intimate, deep, to be unbreakable, bond, covenant, covenant together. And there are witnesses to this marriage covenant. God is witness. In fact, it's God who joins them together. Uh, We see in this verse in Malachi chapter 2, verse 15, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? That is to say that God comes in the midst of this marriage and, and joins this man and woman together to be one. Just as when we come to faith in Christ, his spirit joins us together with God and joins us really as the body of Christ together with each other. You see, marriage models that. Marriage shows that. You get the point. How how can you separate that? What God has joined together, how can you separate? Because you see, that when God joins us together with himself by covenant through Jesus, he says this to us, nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. That's the nature of that covenant. And so, that which God has joined together, us and him, nothing should separate. And so when there is something that's to model this covenant, marriage, then nothing should separate. That's what it means, you see. And the marriage ceremony really, I don't know how many weddings you go to. I go to a lot. But the marriage ceremony itself, you see, is to, is to show that forth. It's to show the leaving and the cleaving. It's to show that a man is leaving his father and mother. And so when you, when you look at a marriage, a, a wedding, if it's here, you see, I'm, I'm always standing on the second step because I'm shorter than everybody else. And then, then the, the groom is here and his groomsmen are there and, and the maid of honor is here and the bridesmaids are there and the dad walks down with the daughter and he stands between the husband and wife because he's still dad. There they are. What's the picture? The picture is we're leaving and we're becoming one. And you have all these witnesses. First, you have God. And so when the Mary ceremonies begins, I always start by saying, we're in the presence of God. He is the one who will witness their vows. That's what it says here. He's a witness to this covenant. What does that mean? It means he's there to hold them accountable to all that they promise. 
He's to witness their vows. He's to join them together. And he's to keep them together by his very grace and power. But there's other witnesses, all the people who are there, most especially the brides, the, the bridesmaids and maid of honor and the groomsmen and the best man. They're most especially witnesses. In fact, I always call them, as they're standing here, think about this the next time you go to a wedding, I always call them the intercessors. Because here we are in the presence of God, in the very throne of God, and those who are standing up, which is the old language, those who are standing there on behalf of the bride and groom are really intercessing. They're petitioning God. They're saying, here, we're standing here on behalf of this husband and this, this bride and groom, this man and this woman. We're standing here, and we're asking you, God, to join them together. We think this is a good thing, and we're going to witness their vows. And I always tell them that because they've been asked to stand up, for the couple, that they have the right at any moment in time, if they think the couple isn't living according to their vows, they have the right to rush and barge right in and tell them that. They don't have to ask permission. They don't have to pass go. They don't have to collect $200. Nothing. They just go right to them. Why? Because that's this sense of being a witness. Because, you see, the covenant we have with God is the covenant that we have with one another. So we're all in this. And then they make a vow, essentially, to God. The I do question, do you take this woman to be your wife? Do you take this man to be your husband? That I do question is not to each other. It's to God. That's the vow that's being made. And then the vow to each other. And the vow to each other is a deep vow. It essentially says that I'm going to love you with a steadfast love, just like I've been loved with a steadfast love. That I'm going to be faithful to you, better for worse, rich or poor, sickness, health. What does that mean? It means in every circumstances. And what's this kind of love? You see, the amazing thing, the blessing of this kind of love is that it fulfills who we are as people who are created in the image of God. It never ceases to amaze me that when I ask people, why do you think you, know, you should marry this woman? Why do you think you should marry this guy? Guys almost always say, she's always there for me. And I said, well, that means she loves you. But do you love her? <laughs> you see, the vow that we take is to always be there for the other. And we're always thinking, I want to be loved. Well, that's part of this. But, but the, the vow that each makes is a vow to love. Do you realize that when God commands us, he commands us to love one another. He doesn't command us to be loved by each other. See, the essence of being in his image is to love. And so you see, what this says is that I'm binding myself to love you in every circumstance, which means I'm willing, I'm I'm promising to sacrifice in such a way that you will flourish. I'm willing to sacrifice my life so that you will be well. That's exactly the love with which we have been loved by Jesus. God says to us, I will sacrifice my own son for your well-being that you would live. That's the essence of this love. Is it a romantic love that we have for one another, husband and wife? Yes, of course. But I hope this is a new news that isn't always present. In fact, there are times when you wake up in the morning and you wonder, who is this person I'm married to? In fact, the other day I asked Karen, how many men have you been married to? Now that may sound like a funny question, even scandalous, but she knew exactly what I meant. Because I've changed over the years, because we've been married 39 years, and so I've changed. There was, she said three, with cameo appearances by uh, various ones throughout the course. Uh, And I was thinking three. I had three in my mind, although it could be four or five. There's a couple others that have popped up from time to time. But there was the me of our first year of marriage, the me of our 239, the me of our 10 through 39. And, 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 And so 
when we married, she was promising to love every one of me. And I was promising to love every one of her. That's a risk. Because we say better for worse, we're thinking better. Richer and poor, we're thinking richer. Sickness and health, we're thinking health. But there's times of worse. There's times of poorer. There's times of sickness. And yet at that moment, when you're 21 years old and don't know anything, you're making that vow before God. Who's saying, what you're doing is like what I did. And so you see, what keeps us during those times of worse, poorer, and sickness is our vows. To live by vows is to live by covenant, to live according to your word. You say, well, I shouldn't need a marriage ceremony to do that. Shouldn't my word be enough? And the answer is no. It shouldn't. It isn't. You need witnesses. You need the solemnity of, of the service. You, you need all of that coming together so that, so that you, it's public, so that people know what you're vowing in the presence of God, in the presence of witnesses, to be held accountable for that. Why? Well, because, you see, uh, we're untrustworthy. But you should want to do that. Because, you see, if you really love you should want to announce it to the world, even shy guys like me. If you really love, you should want to communicate to the one you love, this is really real. I'm really sincere about this. So much so that I'm willing to say it before God. So much so I'm willing to say it before all these people. So much so I'm willing to sign a piece of paper. So much so I'm willing to make this so legal that if it is broken, it could bankrupt me. I could lose everything because what I'm doing right now is banking my whole on this vow. And that, you see, is what it means to be in covenant with one another. And so God says this isn't just a, a willy-nilly kind of thing. This is real. So we come to this table. And this table, you see, is really a covenant meal. It isn't a covenant meal between a married couple. It's a covenant meal between God and his people, his bride. But you see, a marriage relationship reflects that relationship between God and his bride. And thus, as we come, we think of both. don't usually read it. I usually quote the pieces of it I want. But when the Apostle Paul laid out how it is that we're to do this, he writes this, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread, drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's the part I say. But then verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and then so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment 
on himself. That expression. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. What does Paul mean? What does it mean to discern the body? Two things. One, to discern the body of Christ. The very presence of the Lord given for us. And so when we discern the body of Christ given for us, what do we know? Well, we do know then that on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread after giving thanks. He broke it. He did give it to his disciples. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. He took the cup that was there. And again, after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this, he said, in remembrance of me. We're discerning the very the very presence, the very presence of the Lord. So let me say this. If you've sinned, been faithless in your relationship with your spouse, and in some measure and in various ways, we all have, who are married, Don't let your sin keep you from coming to this table. In fact, it's our sin that draws us to this table. And so as we're drawn to it, we're drawn to it because we're able to say what I did, what I said, what I thought was wrong. It was sin. I wasn't loving my husband. I wasn't loving my wife with a steadfast love. And I thought did said that. And I desire to repent and to turn to God and receive his forgiveness and help. Thus we come to this table. Or it may be that you've sinned in this area of divorce even. And you look back and you say that was wrong to do. Some was right to do permitted to divorce and that was right and some wrong and you say now what acknowledge your sin repent and desire that God would help you from this day forward to live faithful and faithful to your covenant and thus you come to this table but there's a second part of this as well the second part of this is he says to discern the body And that is the body of Christ. That is us. It's left, I think, ambiguous by Paul here. He doesn't say the body of the Lord, although that's in some of your translations. It's not in the original text. He just says the body. because, And he's going to talk a lot about the body in 1 Corinthians. But we're to look to one another and we're to say, if I've been faithless in my marriage, then I've been faithless to you as well. Because we're in this together. So we come to this table with our view on Christ and our view on each other to realize we're in this together. Could I say this? If you're in a difficult marriage and there is no biblical grounds for divorce and you're just unhappy, you can say, well, why should I stay together? Well, because of your vows, because of the covenant that was made for the sake of Christ and then look around and say also for the sake of one another see everybody wants community but what that means is that we're bound together to follow Christ and to witness to one another of his goodness and greatness and provision and so you see we need to live with each other in mind as well when we baptize a baby I always say remember live your lives in such a way as to encourage them in their life stay together for the sake of the children your children, if you have them, and the children of the church. Stay together for the sake of other marriages, to encourage them. That's love to one another. That's what it means to be in covenant with each other. I never say this. I'm going to say something, so don't tell anybody this. 
Over the course of the last couple of decades, I've been offered other jobs. And you know why I really haven't taken them? Because of the children. I read once that the most disruptive thing in a church for children is for the pastor to leave. And I said, no, I can't do that. I mean, I like you too. But that's what we do, you see, when we're in covenant together. We make decisions, we do this and that for the sake of Christ, for the sake of his body. Both are always in our mind. You know why? Because both are always in his mind. You know why? Because we've been joined together with him by covenant. We're one. As we come to this table, we discern the body. And we say, I'm in covenant with God through Jesus. And I'm in covenant with each other through Jesus. And so now I come to be forgiven my sins. And to acknowledge that as I leave this table, my heart's desire is to live faithful to my fidelity, my steadfast love to God. And to live in fidelity, my steadfast love to you. Let's pray. Father, pray for me, for us, that you would help us. Now this whole marriage thing is a difficult one. And I think you know that, don't you? Married to us as you are. So Father, I pray for those who are single that you would give them great purpose to please you in their lives. If and as they marry, that it would be in the Lord and to your glory. I pray for those who are married. Father, that you would enable us to live by vows in such a way that pleases you. Forgive us our sins and grant us renewed spirits to live as is glorifying, as reflects the covenant that you've made with us through our Lord Jesus. Now, Father, please take this bread, this juice, set it apart in such a way for us to know that we're in the very presence of Jesus. Meet us here, Lord Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.